Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Politics Uncensored here on FUBAR Radio. I am your host, Ali Milani. And we have a big week uh, this week. Uh, obviously, the main topic of conversation is going to be the results of the by-elections. Uh, you heard last week uh, us speculate around the results, kind of try and determine where the country was as a result uh, of the results. Uh, and now we have those results. Uh, and over the last week, we've seen the political world spin it uh, every which side, um, determining what the results mean, what it could mean for a future general election. Uh, just as a reminder to those who uh, may have been uh, under the political rock, uh, either watching Barbie or Oppenheimer over the last week and, and uh, ignoring the political world, uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't judge you for it. Uh, I, I, I try to do that myself sometimes. Uh, but the results of the by-elections uh, were really interesting. It was um, almost one apiece for every uh, one of the major parties. Uh, Labour was able to wipe out a huge deficit uh, from 2019 to take Selby and Ainsty. Um, while the Liberal Democrats did similar in Somerton and from, but the Tories managed to hold on to Boris Johnson's former constituency of Uxbridge and South Ryslip by a mere 500 votes. Uh, you would have heard me last week. Um, I was fairly confident that Labour would be able to take Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Uh, obviously, many of you will know that that is the seat that I stood in in 2019. Um, and uh, I my gut was telling me that Labour was going to take it, although it was going to be difficult as a result uh, of ULES. Um, but it's a mixed cu- picture around the country. And we're going to be talking about the results and what this means with a very, very special guest. Joining us this week for The Week Unwrapped is Andrew Fisher, uh, author and former director of policy for the Labour Party and famously wrote... Um, the much uh, much praised uh, 2017 uh, manifesto for the Labour Party. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're going to start by talking a little bit about these by-election results, uh, particularly what it could mean for the Labour Party. I think it's a mixed picture, uh, given major wins in Selby and Ainst, I think overturning the biggest majority uh, since the war, but a very, very disappointing night in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Yeah, I mean, I think it broadly told us um, what the polls are telling us and all the kind of data beneath the polls about how much people like the parties. It kind of reinforced that, all of the results. So you look at Selby and Ainsley, and that was you know, a huge swing against the Tories. Um, the Labour vote went up a bit as well, and Labour stormed home. You know, the, the Tory vote collapsed, very similar to what we saw overall in the local elections back in May. Um, and in Somerton and Froome in Somerset, where the Lib Dems won um, with a slightly bigger swing, even um, again, you're seeing that kind of revival of the Lib Dems in their traditional southwest seats. And again, revulsion at the Tories of what they've done to this country over the last few years. So um, that that was kind of all um, fairly, you know, kind of reinforcing what the polling's telling us. Uxbridge, as you say, is a little bit more complicated. Still a good result for Labour in the sense that it's a seven percent swing. But um, the Tories held on. Um, it was a swing less than half of what the national polling suggests Labour should get. And, you know, the candidate there got, I think, about 5,000 fewer votes than the bloke who stood last time, Ali. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with him. But I've never heard of him. I haven't heard of heard him of since, him. interestingly enough. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, elections are about framing, right? And in Selby and Ainsley, the messaging was very clear. Are you better off after the you know 13 years of the Tories? No, you're not. You know, get send them a message. And the Lib Dems doing similar. In Uxbridge, they got knocked off that by ULES. You know, you've got the specifics of Boris Johnson as well. This is a man who's had to resign in shame because of all the scandals he's been involved with, all the lies he's told, as well as all the damage that the Tories have done. And yet Labour somehow got hooked on ULES and went, actually, you've got a point on ULES. You know didn't need to be said mm-hmm. you know that was the tories kind of last gasp please hold this up as some sort of fig leaf for us and the candidate and the campaign got it wrong on that you know this is about children's health this is about the environment and climate change yes there should be a bigger scra- uh, scrappage scheme yes the government should fund it more that's all that needed to be said um and then straight back onto the economy and boris johnson's scandals and i think labor would have romped home uh, but unfortunately i think labor kind of got a bit lost in the weeds there 
Yeah, so I want to talk about Uxbridge and some of the context specifically, but I also want us to, to have a quick chat about um, what this picture means for the strategy that Labour is running nationally. Let's go mm. to Uxbridge first. One of the things that surprised me was I knew ULES was going to be a problem because the Conservatives in that area are quite savvy in their campaigning. They often make things single issue. Um, they know where generally um, the local population lies um, and, and are therefore able to kind of frame that messaging. My question is, given the overwhelming majority that, that Labour overturned in Selby and Ainsley, surely even given ULES, they should not have allowed that to become a single issue election. Um, I think I saw an article by Norette Moore, who is a treasurer of the Labour Party and Labour List, who said, you know, it's not just that ULES was it was was an issue, but that Labour, the, the campaign there, um, the messaging was unclear at first. It was for ULES, then it was against ULES. Um, and that kind of turned people's noses the wrong way and essentially the campaign uh struggled to recover from that uh is is uxbridge just a unique case or could we see lots of uxbridges because every constituency will have their own local issues and the tories will know that uh i think it's semi-unique shall we say you know if we look at even other out outer london boroughs if you look at or other other outer london parliamentary seats if you look at chingford and woodford green just kind of over the other side of London in the northeast, that sort of swing would have seen Labour still get home um, yeah. and Pfizer Shaheen elected, which would be great if she does. But, um, you know, one of the kind of core lessons of political campaigning is you don't accept your opponent's framing. Mm -hmm. They said it was a referendum on you, Les. The Labour candidate should have absolutely stuck to what it was about, which is the government, the economy. The local MP doesn't have a say over you, Les. That's about the London Assembly and mm -hmm. the London Mayor. Um, I, sh I, know, should, so I should mention another point in Norette's articles and other members of the CLP executive have, mm -hmm. and I'm absolutely, you know, I've got all the respect for Danny in the world. It's very difficult to stand in local, in any sort mm -hmm. of election. Um, and I'm better than anyone in the country knows how he's feeling right now, you know, with the, with the disappointments of the loss. But um, there were questions as to whether a more local candidate, as the CLP would have wanted, because the selection process... Um, was was criticised. The CLP was kind of usurped, and Labour HQ ran the campaign centrally. Um, and the criticisms from some within the CLP was, we knew this was going to be an issue. We could have seen it coming, um, but but that was kind of because of some of the factional issues in the party that the campaign didn't get off to the flying start and deal with the issue as early as it could have because of the selection processes and things like that. Um, is that part of the problem with the framing that they couldn't catch up because it was Central London that was running the campaign, not Uxbridge? Yeah, I think that is a problem. And I think, you know, the National Party needs to listen to local campaigners. They know the area best. They've been campaigning there for years, you know, um, and that's a mistake. And alienating local parties can backfire, as we've seen in other by-elections. Um, you know, you go back to Hartlepool, which I think was one of the first by-elections that came up under Keir Starmer, and the party selected a long list of one for members to choose from, um, you know, which is a quite Orwellian uh, version of choice and democracy. Uh, and, you know, it backfired there. Um, you know, so and we've seen other local things as well in Stroud. We've seen, you know, the council fall because of the way the selection process went and Labour lost the council there as a result. So, yes, these things can definitely make a difference. Um, and I, I mean, when the, the votes were, when well, it was 500 votes in it, any one of these singular factors yeah. could have flipped it. A absolutely. We're talking about very small margins. And in a general election, you know, neither party, neither Labour nor the Tories are going to flood campaigners into these seats mm -hmm. um in the way that you can for a by-election because you've got a national picture to win you've got you know multiple seats across london you're trying to win and defend for both parties so it's a slightly false you know by-elections aren't a great indicator of what's going to happen in a general election they can tell you some things um but clearly that you know the tory vote did fall quite a long way from where it was in 2017 2019 problem is so did the labor vote and that shouldn't have happened given yeah. what we saw in Selby and Ainsley, where the Labour vote actually increased, even on the lower turnout. Yeah. Um, so let, so let, let's talk about this general, the more general picture around the country, um, given the by-elections. Like you said, it's they're not always great indicators of where the country is going to go in a general election. But I think they can tell us whether the polls that we're looking at are right. Um, there was a massive swing to the Liberal Democrats in Somerton and from, even though I think Labour mm -hmm. came second in the general election, um, if I'm not mistaken. But Labour's, Labour's vote pretty much collapsed into the Liberal Democrats, mm -hmm. either second or third. But there seemed to be a lot of tactical voting in that area. Could we see a coalition, essentially, around the country 
of anti-Tory votes that gets the Tories out rather than, you know, I think this has been the main criticism, not just of of everybody, really, that's saying there's a huge amount of enthusiasm behind Labour, but there's a huge amount of enthusiasm against the Tories. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the, the polling reflects that. You know, you look at Keir Starmer's personal ratings. Uh, I looked at the latest figures um, earlier this week. Only 26% of voters think Keir Starmer's doing a good job as leader. That's not very encouraging. You know, I think 24% think Rishi Sunak's doing a good job as Tory leader. So there's not a huge difference in their polling. Um, having said that, you know, people do just about prefer Keir Starmer to be prime minister. But the wave of revulsion, I think, is is against the Tories. It's not a wave of enthusiasm for Labour. And, you know, we, we talked about tactical voting just before. You know, we saw that in the locals. People voted for whichever party they thought would get the Tories out. You saw Greens picking up seats that, you know, perhaps wasn't foreseen and on a scale that wasn't foreseen because people saw them as the major rivals to the Tories. You saw the Lib Dems winning multiple councils and councillors. And you saw Labour picking up in areas as well. So it's it's a, it's a strong anti-Tory vote. It's not a strong pro-Lib Dem or pro-Labour vote at this mm. point. Is that a problem? For the Labour Party, I mean, because look, you know, you'll know my position on this. I actually, I, mm. I take a more romantic view of politics. I think we need to offer people hope. Um, I am a little bit uncomfortable with a strategy that is um, vote against something rather than vote for something. But there will be people in Labour HQ that goes, I don't care how it happens as long as we get into mm. government. Can they just ride this anti-Tory wave? Okay, I think there are two problems with their strategy, and I think you've encapsulated it absolutely perfectly. I think that is their strategy. The problem with it is twofold. One, if the economy picks up between now and the next election, you could see some of that revulsion at the Tories just slightly come back. You know, some Tory voters who are sitting at home, sitting on their hands in by-elections and in local elections, come back in a general election. So if we do get a bit of economic growth, if we do start to see inflation really come down and people's wages and incomes rise in real terms, then that could make things a bit more vulnerable. I still think we're at that point now where people are just so fed up with the Tories that they're pretty much gone, a bit like it was in the mid-90s. But you can never say never in politics. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is for Labour is they're going to inherit multiple crises. I I'm assuming they're going to win the next election, but they're going to inherit an absolute disaster zone on the economy, in public services, in terms of the levels of poverty, the housing crisis, climate change. You've got to have a mandate to tackle those big issues. And if your run-up to the election has been, we're not the other lot, and just criticising them, and, you know, oh, we can't do much, we won't be able to do much, disillusion could set in very quickly when they get there. And that's a real threat as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, we seem to think we're in 1997 and Labour's going to win by a landslide because the polling's very good. But actually, you look beneath those figures, there was, and yeah, I'm no fan of Tony Blair, it won't probably surprise <laughs> you to hear, but in the you know in the mid '90s, his personal polling was much better than Keir Starmer's is now. There was a positive vote for Labour as well as a kind of revulsion at the Tories, I also, an anti-Tory vote. Look, I also think people misremember, or or they, there's a bit of revisionist history about Tony Blair in 1997, because this was not. I mean, look, I'm a little bit too young to remember it. I won't age you, Andrew, but I think you do remember that campaign. I do. Yeah, I Could campaigned you, in the '97 election. For for people around my age. Can you just remind them, we didn't go into that election promising nothing or essentially mm. uh, being uber conservative and careful, not conservative in, in the partisan sense, mm. but careful about what we offer. Tony was offering real progressive change in terms of things like minimum wage, things like education, mm. education, education. Talk to people a little bit about that, because I think people are thinking, well, Tony Blair did it and he won. And that's all Keir Starmer is doing. That's not what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back, most of the, the kind of good things that New Labour is credited for, whether that's sure start, whether that's the minimum wage, whether it's reducing class sizes, extra investment in the NHS, getting waiting lists down, all of that was kind of done stuff that was done or at least started in the first term. Devolution as well, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you know, you could point to a whole range of things um, that were positive in that first term. You know, some bad things as well yeah. and some things that didn't go far enough for people like me. Yeah. But the 1997 election itself, yeah. on the in the manifesto and on the table in the agenda, mm. were progressive things. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the five point pledge card. I, I you know I can't remember each one of the <laughs> five uh, now. But you know the minimum wage and reducing class sizes 
was a really important thing because there were a lot of kids in in oversized classes i grew up in the 80s and my class size was 36 to 38 i said i wasn't going to age you and you just did it yourself it's okay yeah no it's, it's <laughs> fine it's all right um <laughs> it's on my twitter handle I was born in 1979 so you know it's uh it's out there um but you know so there was a positive reason to vote for labor and there was a kind of i think the other thing that's perhaps misremembered about that is the kind of stuffiness and how bigoted Britain, or at least the Tories, were seen to be an out of touch. And there was a, a younger generation and older generations, by the way, that weren't comfortable with this anymore. Society was changing, and Blair encapsulated that in the way the Tories back then didn't. It took David Cameron to kind of try and modernise and get rid of some of that. I mean, obviously, some of it's crept back since. But, um, you know, there was that cultural element. He caught the mood of the times about being more modern, being more progressive. Things like just saying, call me Tony. You know, mm -hmm. There was a very formality, very stuffiness about Britain at that time. And yeah. Blair sort of broke through that. It seems quite weird now because he's, you know, very Mr. Establishment. He's been knighted. He's, yeah. you know, stands I also... up for those in power. But he was, you know, there was a semi-rebellious... -re yeah. I also think we need to be appeal. we need to be careful with the comparisons between now and 1997 mm -hmm. as a campaign. Look, I am, I'm first and foremost a campaigner. And mm. without, um, you know, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I want the Labour Party to win. I'll be on the doorstep, um, I'm sure, alongside you at the next general election. Mm. But I think even the most staunchest Labour Party member and campaigner can admit that Keir Starmer doesn't have the same uh, sort of charisma that Tony did in 1997. He might struggle a little bit more in a general election campaign. Mm. Um, and so I wonder whether there's a real risk to this, because I agree with you, you know, the, the one thing I have learned in all my years campaigning is that the conservative vote will often go back home, even when it's iffy mm. along along the, the the lines now. And so if at this moment when their ears are open to us and they are so turned off by the Tory party, if we don't give them hope now, we could easily lose them by the general election. Yeah, I think it's very tenuous. As you as we've said, it's, a, it's an anti-Tory vote rather than a pro-Labour vote. And, and the other thing I, I think as well is worth remembering from that run-up to 97, Labour's membership ballooned between 1992 and 1997. It went up by 180,000. Some of that obviously happened under John Smith uh, before he died in the middle of 94. But a lot of it was under under Blair as well. And it was fairly consistent. Labour's membership went from about a quarter of a million to 430,000, which at that time was the highest it had been in, you know, under the current sort of structure of the party. Now it's gone from 580,000, I think they claimed during the leadership contest where Keir Starmer won, mm -hmm. down to just under 400,000 now. So it's going in the opposite direction. So you're not seeing this kind of swing of enthusiasm reflected in the membership yeah. numbers either. And, and obviously it's slightly different times. You started with a higher, um, you know, uh, bar, but... You know that that again is another indicator that that again there's just not that enthusiasm around. Can I ask Starmer you? And, and the systems, you know, the the lead is more fragile. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things I want to ask you is one of the popular narratives on Twitter, or X or whatever Elon wants to call it this week, um, is yeah. that that Keir is is hedging his bets. He knows what he needs to say to win, and that he's going to be much more radical in in government. Uh, that seems to be some of his supporters' view on Twitter. That you know he doesn't really believe entirely in what he's saying and that was particularly in response to the two-child limit which is a mm. heinous policy that he himself has described mm. as um that labor are now saying that they won't reverse the view is he's just saying this now to win and when he actually gets into government he's going to be far more radical do you do you hold, hold much weight to that view no i don't um when somebody shows you who they are believe them um and i remember from the 90s you know polly toynbee used to write uh, columns in the Guardian saying, you know, Tony Blair is going to be much more radical. He was just being cautious to get into government. You, you wait, he'll be much more radical, much more radical. And actually, he moved right in government. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't buy that. I don't buy it from the experience of of ninety seven when actually, you know, the party in government moved to the right. You know, uh, opening up schools and hospitals to marketization, ID cards, more authoritarian crackdowns, more anti welfare stuff. Obviously, the Iraq War is the glaring. Uh, kind of crime of that of that period um but no I, I don't and i think you know as i said before you've got to build a consensus for what you want to do in government yeah and you know, you've uh, got so... to kind of make the argument and that's one thing that his yeah. son was not very good at doing is is making that political argument taking on what is an entrenched position in the in the media or in the conservative party and just saying yeah i'm gonna fight this battle over this 
So let's look into, I, I think you're right. I suspect Labour will win the next general election. I don't think it will be as a, a stomping victory, but I think we, we'll get there. Uh, and I certainly hope we do, because uh, I think the country's crying out for um, a, a Labour government. I saw something that John McDonnell, former chancellor, uh, former shadow chancellor um, and uh, Labour Party front bencher has written. He has said this week that there's a real risk that if Labour come into government with the mandate that that you spoke about earlier, this more sort of restrained mandate, there is a risk that as we don't tackle some of the biggest crises that require real radical change, mm. that we may see, similar to Europe, a rise of the far right. Um, and I think he's made a really, really interesting point. I think often people can, can dismiss it out of hand, but the reality is that... Um, if we don't meet the challenges from climate to the economy to the cost of living, all these kinds of things, we often see the far right kind of rise up and give very simplistic answers uh, and play with people's emotions uh, and rise up in the political realm. We saw that post Obama with Trump. We've seen that with Le Pen in France. Uh, we've just seen that in the Spain elections, although the left have, have done surprisingly well there. Um, do you think John has a point? Do you think that the first term of a Labour government may cause itself some problems with the kind of campaign it runs yeah i think if if the labor if the incoming labor government doesn't deal with these issues and substantially deal with these issues mm -hmm. and make people's lives better dissolution will set in very quickly mm -hmm. and they'll so hand people... power across i think what we need to bear in yeah. mind is that boris johnson has left but he's left behind Jacob Rees-Mogg and Suella Braverman and Priti Patel XYZ and they're most likely mm -hmm. if Rishi Sunak loses the election we know that, that it's that wing of the Conservative Party that's going to take over. It is I mean I, I'm not sure any of those people are, are kind of personally likeable enough to actually kind of right. to hear around but um, there is that threat and we've seen it a bit with Nigel Farage over recent days you know he's his own personal banking situation um, mm -hmm. He's suddenly segued into this thing of, oh, look, and, and aren't the banks ripping you off as well, which is kind of left rhetoric, but kind of it's sort of wedded into or welded into his kind of anti-woke agenda. They they barred me because of my political views. Mm -hmm. He's kind of moving as a kind of gateway into a kind of wider sort of almost leftish or couched in leftist terms critique of the banks. And so there is that danger. I think that's the gap. I don't think Suella Bravman and others will take that territory on because they don't want the left-wing economics or kind of even to kind of play with that whereas i think others um and we've seen this elsewhere with orban in hungary who mm. has um you know gone down that route i i think that those sort of people are the bigger threat um uh, you know i don't know who they are i don't think they're reese mogg or bravman or or any of the people that perhaps are currently on the tory front bench or around it mm -hmm. but you could see a, a situation in which because mm. of labor's uh, more restrained campaign that it runs to win elections. It doesn't feel it has the mandate to radically change anything in the economy, the cost of living. And if we're not able to at least begin to fix some of these big crises, then we could face a challenge from the far right in government. And uh, basically, as 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 difficult as our politics has been over the last since post Brexit, mm -hmm. it could get worse. Oh, definitely. I th you know, I think we're, you know, we shouldn't forget we're in the worst, the longest and deepest cost of living crisis that this country ha has known on record since at least the 1950s. People's yep. living standards are falling. We haven't really yet seen the impact on mortgage holders, not fully. I mean, there there is a cohort, of course, who have already been hit by increases. That cohort is mm -hmm. going to increase as more people come off fixed term mortgages we're seeing rents going up and up and up and people's wages are not matching it so this isn't getting better over the next year i don't think yeah um which is why i think the tories will lose but you combine that with all the other things going wrong the underfunding of schools the lack of teachers the um lack of ability to get a gp appointment the huge waiting list in the nhs you yeah. can see that this could really you know so, yeah i think we're at that point where you know some sort of outpouring for that frustration is going to come and it may be electorally it may be you know some sort of riots like we saw in 2011 when austerity first started hitting mm -hmm. um but that kind of thing can't be ruled out at the moment and if politicians don't have the answers people's frustration finds other outlets is the is the simple way of putting it i think yeah and i think there's a certain element of courage i think that will be needed um from the labor party not just the leadership mm. uh broadly uh andrew last last question um i often ask this of everyone who comes um 
Mm. I like to have a bit more of a hopeful ending um, to to all okay. interviews and to the shows. Let's imagine you're sat. You know, you wrote the the 2017 manifesto, which was brilliant uh, and was so well received, um, despite the efforts of some. Um, <laughs> let's say you're sat in the strategy room, right, with Keir Starmer and uh, Rachel Reeves and others, and let's assume you're not going to be thrown out the window. Um, <laughs> what would what would be your sort of rallying call for what Labour needs to do to not only win the election in 2024, but to give people real hope and meet the crises of our time? I think you've got to pick a side. That's the problem. And we've seen today with, um, yeah, I'm not going to give you one policy because there's not just one magic bullet that's going to solve everything. We are have multiple crises. But yeah, we've seen today with British Gas reporting a 900% increase in their profits. I mean, just to dwell on that for a second, if you're earning £30,000, which is around the average wage in this country, if you got a 900% pay rise, you'd be on £300,000, which is quite a jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their profits have jumped because they've made more money out of us with higher energy bills. Um, and, you know, you see this across the piece, supermarkets profits, banks profits. They're all, you know, who's on our side? And it's that element, I feel, that, labor is kind of lacking at the moment it's that sense of fight of we're going to be on your side we're going to take on these people that are ripping you off that's what they need to be saying and that's what they need to be doing really because it's being hit your wages are being hit more of what's left of your income is being taken in rent in mortgage in supermarket bills in energy bills on rail fares you know everything's going up and um i think that that sense of injustice is is really strong. And I think if a party can find the answer to that, they'll do very well. I couldn't put it more eloquently than that. Thank you so much. That was Andrew Fisher, author and former director of policy for the Labour Party uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, who has very eloquently, like I said, and passionately made the point for the fact that a Labour Party or politics in general needs to have the courage uh, to pick a side come the next general election, because we all know, that the billionaires and the banks um, and the multinational corporations, they do have allies in Westminster and it's us ordinary folk uh, who need some. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up next, we've got Dr. Kirsty Sedgman, Doctor of Audiences at the University of Bristol and the author of a brand new book, Unbeing Unreasonable. We're going to talk to her about her new book and her view of civility in politics after this message. FUBAR Radio presents... All areas. We have the absolute icon, mm-hmm. legend, Janice Dickinson. I'm here. Do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do. I do really enjoy it. I, do, I don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that side to Amazon. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the the social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. Politics uncensored. This week we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display both in office and in ministerial office. No, absolutely, one hundred. We're an embarrassment. Yeah, you know, we're, we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. Back in the day when it used to be like fashionable or uh, it was it was the thing to do when you go on Facebook. Yeah, and you'd be like, oh, I'm like in a relationship. What was the other one? It was um, it's complicated. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with, yeah. or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do, you used to pop up on the feed. So you'd be sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and then in the feed, it would be, um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single. So you'd like that one. Or do, poke them. Did you poke them? And then you'd give you them a little poke. poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, wasn't it? You're listening to Foobar Radio. 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 
Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio with Politics uh, Uncensored. So far today, uh, we had Andrew Smith, uh, the former author and uh, director of policy at the Labour Party. And Andrew was talking to us so passionately about the need for our politics to have a little bit more courage, um, the sort of bravery to pick a side. Uh, and I'm delighted next to be joined by Dr. Kirsty Sedgman, Doctor of Audiences at the University of Bristol and author of a brand new brilliant book uh, on being unreasonable. In this book, I think what Kirsty unwraps uh, is, is similar to, to what uh, me and Andrew have been speaking about, but goes beyond. Um, and I think many of you will have heard on this show previously me talk about the importance of the individual uh, and the quality of the human being that exists in politics, because ultimately it's people that make decisions and it's the cultures that we set in Westminster and in our political discourse that drives so much of what actually happens. And uh, Dr. Kirsty Sedgman unravels this idea of civility and being reasonable in this book. Um, Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us. Could you, for those who may not have had a chance to pick up the book, which I urge them to do and I think is available at all good bookstores, it's called Unbeing Unreasonable. Can you talk to us a little bit about what drove you to write this book and the central thesis around it? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So the book is the culmination of really a decade of research and thinking and then writing to try to unravel one big question, which is in a world where we all think that we're reasonable people, but where our beliefs and behaviours can differ so wildly from the person next to us, then how can we figure out who is right? And, and how can we figure out who's right? Do you have any answers for us? <laughs> One of the things that I wrestle with in the book is the difficulty of being able to come to any kind of shared understandings of each other in a world where civic discourse has fundamentally broken down, where it's becoming harder and harder to talk in ways that are healthy, and nourishing for that sense of ourselves, not as individuals, but as part of this broader social community. Mm. And it often feels that, I think in politics, one of the difficulty in recent years is, unless we all agree the rules of the game that we play, then we end up playing different games. And that's how I think often the far right rises and the rise of things like racism and, uh, and misogyny and other things in our politics is so rife is that we really just can't agree on what is and isn't reasonable discourse and i think that's best encapsulated by the culture war that's being run particularly by the conservative party right now how dangerous in your view is it that we have essentially in our politics no shared understanding of what is civil acceptable differences whereby essentially political campaigns are being run on the identities of individuals in the country I think that it's never been more dangerous than ever, given the manifold crises that we're facing right now. A good portion of the world is literally on fire, and yet still we're arguing in circles about just stop oil protesters and whether they are behaving unreasonably for throwing up some clouds of orange chalk. And what would you suggest is, you know, are ways that we can begin to tackle uh, the polit the way the the form of our political discourse the you know how nasty things are getting the fact that election lines are being drawn on the identities of Muslims and trans people and ethnic minorities what what are some ways in which we can we can pull ourselves out of this mess? Well, chapter five in the book is all about civil disobedience and that topsy turvy narrative as Zinn famously called it in the 1970s, where he said that whenever we talk about civil disobedience, we tend to think that civil disobedience is the problem, people behaving out of order. But actually, he said in a really powerful speech, it's civil obedience that's the problem in a world where the rule of law is the plague of the people and the darling of leaders. So... We really need to interrogate not just that urge very often for politicians and people in the media to immediately, as soon as an act of protest takes place, to decry the protesters for being completely unreasonably disruptive, but also that impulse in ourselves to draw those lines, because that's really what my book is all about. As I say, I 
have to say it really carefully, because mm. of course we need the ability to draw lines, lines between appropriate and inappropriate, acceptable and unacceptable, legal and uh, and illegal, good and bad, reasonable and unreasonable. Society itself relies on us being able to draw those lines. We need them to function, but we also need to think really critically about who historically has had the power to set those rules and to draw those lines and who has been prioritized and privileged in and through the and who has been harmed mm -hmm. and i do think that particularly when it comes to things like the crackdowns on civic protest now we're seeing that top turvy narrative very much in action we need to resist it and to reclaim the right to break some rules where needed and to become unreasonable if it's in pursuit of those moral morally reasonable goals and how do we determine what rules we can and cannot break because obviously you know when it comes to just stop oil they will suggest that you know breaking some rules is a reasonable thing to do given that what's on on the line is the very existence of the planet but similarly on the far right many will be saying there are some rules that we should be willing to break to stop these boats coming across the english channel uh, and to, to stop the wave of immigration terms that they use that I would obviously never use. Um, how do we determine who's right and who's wrong? That's the morandry at the very heart of the book. And that's why actually it took me, this is now the second book that I've written about the social contract, but it's the first that is for, for a wider public audience. And I didn't mean to write this book, but I, I, it was in the middle of lockdown and I saw that sense that we're all in this together, disintegrating, and the social contract collapsing around us. And before I knew it, I'd pitched it to, and it had been bought by Faber. But it really is such a complicated moral philosophical question that it took me about 80,000 words to unravel it. Mm -hmm. And in the final chapter, that's where I work my way around to considering the particularly the um, um, partisan uh, uh, political implications of having these two governmental broad systems where we've set them up as in conflict with each other and I have to I had to have a little moral reckoning with myself when I realized that become unreasonable is the slogan of one of the far-right US groups mm -hmm. because what I'm not suggesting is that anybody should be able to do whatever they like based on their own personal preferences or a sense of just a sense of grievance or indignation because that's what we have seen erupting in things like the capital protests or um, insurrections depending on who you talk to but we do need to think really the book is for those on the left to give us that guiding principle that way out of the law of moderate centrism that says we should be listening to both sides maybe there are we should be balancing them equally. And what I say in the book is we have to learn as a society and as a political structure to think really critically and carefully about relations of power. Because right. balance cannot mean listening to both sides equally where one side is taking the, to the streets to keep hold of the tremendous power that they already have. Mm -hmm. And the other side is fighting for just a little bit of that power that has so long been denied them. That's yeah, but isn't balance. but isn't that part of the problem? Balance for balance sake, where whereby but it's that old trump of both sides to have very very good reasonable people. In that you know uh, that balance for balance sake in our politics, and it's it's that sort of. Um, I think part of the issue that I have with traditional centrism is that both sides have a view, and both sides have. Uh, some virtue to them well if we look out the window and it's raining and i say it's raining and you say it's not the way to deal with that is not to say that me and you disagree on the weather it's to look outside and see whether it is raining or not <laughs> the, you know things can be fact checked um so isn't aren't there just some things that we need to call out as unacceptable unreasonable and drive them out of political discourse rather than you know pretending there's there's some virtue in them absolutely and in fact, I say in the book that it is time now, in fact, it's long past time that we look out of that window. Yeah. And so, so one of the things I want to ask very... is, is, is as well as as well as the 
the actual virtue of the argument, um, one of the things that's come up is the medium in which we use to talk, and that's social media. Uh, it's, it's massively changed political discourse. Uh, and I think in and of itself, uh, there are challenges to the way we talk about things, reasonability and unreasonability, um, civil disobedience and, and other things. Uh, how much has social media shaped the discourse and has it ultimately been a force for bad rather than a force for good? It's a huge part of the jigsaw puzzle. So in one of the chapters, I address social media and technological advancement as part of these broader political and technological changes. I call it the disconnection economy. And I'm, it's absolutely not the case that I'm feeding that moral panic that says that social media is nothing but bad. In fact, social media is a tool, like all kinds of things like protest, um, and like civic discourse, they are tools. They can be used for good and bad purposes. So what I try to trace out is that lineage by which social media platforms, not all of them, but a good number, have been deliberately designed to encourage dissensus mm -hmm. because it's hate clicks that make them money. And that's part of this broader disconnection economy that I say is gradually incentivizing us into individualistic modes of thinking rather than communitarian, thinking about what's best for us and our families rather than what's best for us as communities and as societies as a whole. Right. And so you're talking about your book on being unreasonable. Give us a little plug about where people can find you and keep up with your work. I'm on Twitter tiktok instagram i think it's x now social media you're on x <laughs> oh yes it is <laughs> at kirsty sedgman and the book is available in all good bookshops and some bad ones as well. <laughs> yes you can get the book it's called unbeing unreasonable thank you so much that was dr kirsty sedgman doctor of audiences at the university of bristol and the author of unbeing unreasonable which we've been talking about which looks at uh the way um things our political discourse has gone the social construct the social contract uh, and much much more and you can catch that on all good bookstores Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us when we get back with you uh we're going to be talking with real people it's my favorite segment of the show every week um this week we're going to be focusing on you les uh i think a lot of people um have heard the term you probably for the first time um and so we go to the streets of central london to find out what people really think we know what uxbridge thinks about you but let's go to what people really think. Uh, and we're going to hear from them after this message. Fubar Radio presents. Access all areas. There was some, an interesting no-show, I thought, in Harry Styles. Apparently he didn't come because uh, both Olivia Wilde, his ex-girlfriend, and Emily Ratta, Emrata, uh, was, uh, was there too and he was pictured kissing her recently in Japan um, lucky care I th apparently he avoided because best not to be around two women you've recently been with I guess if you're Harry Styles see if I'd have been there I'd have said to both of them piss off alright <laughs> <laughs> let's go and have a gin and tonic so joining us now we have Count Binface an independent space warrior I just wanted to quickly ask you one last question uh, let's say you had won that election and you became prime minister you know what are some of the big things you'd like to change what are some of the big things you believe in that our politics needs well why don't we talk about the old royal family uh, because you know I, I don't wish to uh, abolish them like some people do no 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 I merely wish to solidify their ceremonial role so that they become the living breathing version of Madame Two Swords that deep down the public wants again I've been out on dates where people have gone oh like what, what do you do why do they want pictures and then I'll just go oh listen I'll do little bits on TV that's it um, and then Two hours later, when they've had a few drinks, they start going, so tell me what happened with this girl. What happened with this? What happened with that? And I think I thought you didn't know. Well, this is why I think I struggle with my date life because I never, I've, I just see myself as me. You know, I'm from Oxford, moved to London. That's it. I have a great group of friends. That's as simple as my life is. When I go to date someone, I don't see myself as, oh, I'm um, a girl that works on TV. I just see myself as me. But then I'm reminded by some of the things that they might do. You're listening to Food Bar Radio. 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 Food Bar Radio.
Fubar Radio presents Harriet Rose. Amber Marks here. As I was saying, the visuals on Love Be Right, it was kind of like Lady in the Water, like, you know, yeah, that yeah. old painting. That was pretty crazy being in that pink plastic pool with like milk and like pink food dye and jello, I think. So to us, it looks really sexy, and then you're just sat in there like, what? It is was very this? cold. <laughs> very cold and very gloopy. Yeah. Did you pee in the pool? No, I did not. I didn't. Promise me. I swear I didn't because there was the guy who was doing, he was holding the camera. I felt really bad. He was in the pool with me, so I didn't want to pee. Oh, so that's the only reason you didn't pee in the pool because no, exactly. there's another guy there. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Too. He's suddenly like, oh, did someone put some warm water in yeah. here? <laughs> kind of a yellowy hue. Every Thursday, Harriet Rose from 4 p.m. Fubar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Fubar Radio at Politics Uncensored. Uh, we've had a good show this week. We've spoken to Andrew Fisher, who was the author and former director of policy at the Labour Party uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, we spoke about the general, um, the by elections. Most recently uh, in Selby and Ainsley, Summerton and Froome, uh, as well as Uxbridge and South Ricelip. And I think Andrew gave us a really quite powerful account of what he would do were he still to have influence in the Labour Party. And his sort of warning to the Labour Party was that this approach of almost do no harm in a general election campaign may be difficult because while... Labour may be quite restrained with its view of bringing Tory voters across to Labour and making that jump between Labour and the Conservatives a much easier one for voters. Because um, if you can imagine, there are people around the country who have always voted Conservative, uh, who are Conservative voters in their own identification, who may find it difficult to transfer across. The view in for many across the Labour Party is that we need to do as much as we can, we being the Labour Party, to make that jump as easy as possible. Um, but obviously, that has come under heavy criticism, particularly around the two-child policy, which uh, Sakir Starmer has said that Labour would not be looking to refer- reverse, as well as many other uh, policies that uh, traditional Labour folk can't wait to reverse or get rid of once we have a Labour government, if we do. But what Andrew said, which was really interesting, is that if we don't offer hope if the Labour Party doesn't or any political party doesn't offer hope then it runs the real risk of any form of recovery for Rishi Sunak and that might be the budget that's that's going to be happening before the next general election so they're going to get one more budget um, which may have um, some quote-unquote sexy items to to bring some conservative voters home uh, or a recovery as it as it pertains to inflation or NHS waiting times, any sort of recovery from the Conservative side could risk those voters coming home and a Labour majority. Bear in mind, many will be looking at the polls and thinking Labour are 20, 25 points ahead in the polls. And that's maybe true. I mean, the by-election suggests we're probably not looking at that large of a lead for the Labour Party. But undoubtedly, Selby and Ainsley tells us that Labour Party are massively ahead of the Conservatives as it stands, but we don't have proportional representation. We have 650 seats around the country that are all going to have their own elections, and it's a first-past-the-post system. And so even a 40-45% vote for the Labour Party may not mean a big majority in Parliament. We may be looking at a hung Parliament. We may look at a small majority for Labour. We may look at no overall control by any party. And because of our political system, you know, what Andrew was saying is, unless we're able to offer the hope that's needed, then Labour runs the risk of actually losing the next general election or not getting the majority that it could have gotten. And he also warned that even if Labour was to win that election, it may not have the mandate to deal with the crises of our time with the radicalness that's necessary. The cost of living crisis will not be dealt with with tory light policies. The growth that is required is not going to be dealt with with restrained policy. Even Barack Obama, who, despite what Republicans called him as the the dashing Muslim socialist, which he was not, when he came into government following the 2008 crash, he understood that it was massive investment that was needed in order to promote growth in the economy. And so unless Labour is willing to say that before the next general election, there is a risk, as Andrew very eloquently put, 
that they may not have the mandate to deal with these issues with the with the with the radicalness that is required and i think whether you agree with andrew or not whether you sit more on the Keir Starmer side of the party or more on the John McDonald side of the Labour Party, there are some interesting points that are raised and ones that deserve reflection. But as it pertains to Uxbridge and South Ryslip, it was really ULEZ that was purported as the reason why Labour were not successful in that election. As many of you know, I stood in 2019 against then Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, and we came closer than anyone has in 100 years of unseating a sitting Prime Minister. And so no, I know Uxbridge and South Ryslip better than most. And so I wasn't surprised that ULEZ became an issue. But I was surprised that ULEZ was the only issue. Now, the ultra-low uh, emission zone, which is what ULEZ stands for, for those of you who may not know, is a charge that's placed, particularly on diesel vehicles, but but older vehicles that have high emissions in our air, uh, that is used to discourage the use of those cars in London. Now, bear in mind, London has one of the worst air qualities anywhere in Europe. Uh, we are now linking deaths of young people, particularly, but of all people, directly to the quality of air in London. The air that we breathe in Hillingdon uh, in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, is amongst the worst in Europe. And so Sadiq Khan, who has been driving the expansion of ULEZ, has taken a lot of flag for it in Uxbridge and South Ryslip because what it could mean, what it means is about £12, give or take, uh, that these drivers have to pay to use their cars on a daily basis because they fall within the ULEZ zone. So if you have a diesel car, then you fall within the ULEZ zone and you'd have to pay that that price. Uh, and as the Conservatives pointed out, that that could be as much as £4,000 a family has to pay. Now, to, this is where it gets interesting. People in London often misunderstand the the perspective of people in Uxbridge and South Ryslip because most people in Zone 1, Zone 2, maybe even Zone 3 of London, the majority of people, I think over half, don't own cars. They use public transport. They use the buses and, and, and the tube. And the cars that they do have, you know, they they might be able to afford to buy the newer cars that are ULEZ compliant. But for those of us in the donor areas of London, places like Uxbridge and South Ryslip, uh, which as the Labour uh, group leader, Peter Curlin, Councillor Peter Curlin, quite eloquently put on Twitter recently, he put a nice thread about ULEZ. And if, you, if, you're, if you're concerned or curious about the position of people in Uxbridge and South Ryslip on ULEZ, then I would really suggest going and looking at Peter Curlin's Twitter. He put a really good thread out which A, makes the position that Uxbridge and South Ryslip isn't really late, isn't really London. Um, it's it's more of an outer London, Middlesex area. And that is important because there isn't as much reliance on public transport. There isn't as much connectivity. And a good deal amount of people do have to use their cars to go into work, to go and see family, to meet their caring responsibilities that they may have with older relatives or uh, people with disabilities. And they are being financially punished as a result. And I think this is a really, really interesting and, and unique case because no one disagrees with the fact that ULEZ, as a principle in dealing with the air pollution, is a serious issue that needs to be tackled. We know that in Uxbridge and South Ryslip better than the rest of London. Our air quality is worse. But what the people of Uxbridge and South Ryslip was crying for was particularly, for example, people who bought diesel vehicles. Well, when they bought those vehicles, the government was telling them that they're better for the environment. And now they're being told that they have to change those vehicles or pay up to £4,000 a year. The support needs to be there for those families to make sure that it's not the most vulnerable people that are punished while multinational corporations get off scot-free. And that's the difficulty for me. Uxbridge is home to Oxbridge and South Ryslip as a constituency is home to lots and lots of big multinational companies, global corporations who host their their UK headquarters in Oxbridge and South Ryslip, largely because Heathrow is so close. Now what I would love people to do, and if you've heard the show, you know how passionate I am about the environment and the need to tackle the air pollution in our country. I'm right behind Sadiq Khan on that. But the reality is that when it comes to climate change, our politicians seem to always place the bill on individual families. So the way to clean up our air 
is to place that bill on individual families as it pertains to ULEs, while the likes of Apple and Coca-Cola, who sit in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, get off scot-free as it pertains to, you know, radical environmental policy to clean our air. While Heathrow, who are looking for a third runway in Hillington, who want to put more planes on top of people's houses, get off scot-free. And the point is, no one disagrees with cleaning our air. What we disagree with is the fact that the support isn't put in place for those families. So if I have an elder, elderly family that I need to care for, someone with a disability that I need to care for, that I need my car for, I'm absolutely in favor of, of cars with less emissions. But it's you, government, it's you, City Hall, that is responsible for making sure that I am not financially put in a black hole into bankruptcy because I have to change the car that you told me 15 years ago was better to buy, that you told me diesel was better for the environment. And those are just some of the complexities around Uxbridge and South Ryslip. And if we'd understood that better, maybe we would have had a Labour victory. Now, that being said, a 7% swing is particularly impressive. I think Andrew said that the last candidate got something like 5,000 or 3,000 more votes. I don't know who he is, but he's a good guy. Uh, and I would listen to him more. But now we go to our Vox Pops. <laughs> My producers are laughing at me. Now we go to our Vox Pops. Our wonderful producers go out to London. Uh, and I've gone into the streets of central London to see what people really think about ULEZ. Do you support ULEZ? I uh, definitely think pro. I think um, nice to know that we're trying to improve the quality of, of the air within our city. <laughs> and also I think the transport in, in London is so good that there's probably no need really to drive. I think it will happen eventually anyway. Um, and I think it's being used as a, a bit of a political Trojan horse for other parties and other issues. Um, so yeah, definitely pro. I think like most cars, you're fine. It's just very old, polluting cars anyway. So I just think it's good for the like environment and like health of like everyone living there, living here. And yeah, but I also don't drive a car, so it doesn't actually affect me. At first, I was really pro it because I was like, oh, it's great like the environment and obviously London's so polluted and everything but then I heard uh, a lot of arguments basically just like pushing a lot of people who can't afford new cars and like have to drive into central London older cars aren't don't comply to the ultra low emission zone thingy so yeah it's just pushing them out um, and it's people who can buy like electric cars or newer cars that can afford to get away with it so I think overall I'd say I'm against it like expanding so much into the outskirts of London I think there's probably other ways that they could cut down emissions without having to like ostracize people and i think that second to last woman that spoke really encapsulates i think what the people of oxbridge and south ryslip are saying no one disagrees with cleaning up our air it has to be an absolute priority and yes we do need radical policies to deal with it and that might mean an ultra low emission zone but what must be done is that the families of the most vulnerable the poorest, those with caring responsibilities, those who need to get in for work, um, they have to be protected against the financial cost of ULEs. Um, and that case needs to be made uh, by people. Um, the other thing I think it's worth pointing out is uh, I would seriously urge everybody listening to go and Google who created ULEs um, and who rolled it out into London to begin with. His name begins with Alexander de Feffel. Uh, and he's a conservative. And so I would go looking into that. Sadiq Khan did not cost Labour the election in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. What cost Labour the election in Uxbridge and South Ryslip is not having the serious local knowledge to tackle this issue and understand the pain that people could be feeling if it comes to ULEs. So if there's nothing else you take away from today's show, I hope you do take away the fact that Andrew said that serious courage is needed in our politics. And the point of Dr. Kirsty Sejman, where we have to think about the social contract and the way that we are reasonable to one another and clean up our political discourse. But that is it pertains to Uxbridge and South Ryslip and ULEZ, what I hope you take away is, it's high time that the radical policies that are needed to clean up our air, to clean up our environment, are, and the bill of those radical policies isn't always put at the foot of working families. How about for once in our lives, we put it on the foot of BP. We put it at the foot of Coca-Cola. We put it at the foot of Apple and the multinational corporations who are the highest polluters in our planet, not the single parent who needs to take their child to school or the older gentleman who may have caring responsibilities for their father 
or mother. And if we learn those lessons and listen to the people of Uxbridge and South Ryslip, then we can avoid further political losses and damage. Thank you all so much. My rant is over. Uh, you are done listening to me for at least one more week. Um, I want to thank all our guests, Dr. Se Kirsty Sedgman, Doctor of Audiences at the University of Bristol and author of On Being Unreasonable, which you can get at all good bookstores and Titan Andrew Fisher, author and former director of policy for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, who wrote the 2017 manifesto. You can go find both of them on Twitter or X or musk.com or whatever it ends up being. Please follow us on Twitter at Politics Fubar and on Instagram and on TikTok and whatever new social program or social media might come by next week. I'll see you later. Salams. <laughs>